How's it going, everybody? This is Andy McCullough from The Athletic here with Mark Carrig, also from The Athletic. You are listening to Beyond the Scrum, a show about baseball. Mark, how's it going, man? Doing all right. I'm admiring your Eagles hat right now. The old Kelly Green. I like that. Um, yeah, I just uh, I just reread uh, for the first time in maybe, I don't know, must have been like 10 years, uh, maybe 15. I reread the book Bring in the Heat by Mark Bowden. I don't know if you ever... Uh, read that. Uh, I was inspired by John Greenberg mentioned it in a story we did something about like best, you know, sports books or whatever. But, um, you know, Mark Bowden, the guy who wrote like Black Hawk Down and mm. Killing Pablo and all those books. He was like the Eagles beat writer um, for the Philadelphia Inquirer from 90 to 92. And he wrote a book about the 92 season that is just phenomenal. Uh, oh. Yeah, would strongly recommend it. Um, just like it's, it's sort of it, it's a book that doesn't feel possible now, um, with the level of like insight and access, and you know, and, and not just like access into you know the locker room or like the coaches' room, but just like you know he like has like the players' spouses on the record talking about like their husbands' infidelity and stuff in a way that is just like you're like that. I mean, this this is just a level wow. of like. There's just a level of detail that does not, you know, very few books seem to like even scratch the surface of just the, you know, the actual interpersonal drama. So um, anyway, it's about, the, I would strongly recommend it. Bring in the heat. Great, great book. Give me some names on that team. Reggie White, Randall Cunningham. Sure. Is that... uh, yeah, Randall was the quarterback. Uh, Herschel Walker was the running back. You know, oh, Fred, Bar- Fred Barnett and Calvin Williams were the wide receivers. Uh, but it was really, you know, the defense was the, the, you know, the bread and butter of the team. It was, you know, Reggie White, Clyde Simmons, uh, Mike Golick, um, uh, Seth Joyner, Byron wow. Evans, Willie T, William Thomas, you know, Eric Allen. Remember Eric Allen? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Andre Waters and Wes Hopkins were the two safeties. Wow. You know, Vice Sikahema was the return man. <laughs> Jim McMahon was the backup quarterback. Um, wow. Keith Byers was the tight end. Yeah, great, great team. Who's coaching in 92? That, that's not Buddy Ryan, is it? No, it was not. It was Richie Kotite. Oh, Richie so, Kotite. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Pre-Jets days, right? Was, yes. was it Eagles first, then Jets? Yeah. It was Eagles, then Jets, yeah. And they, uh, yeah, Norman Brayman, or as, uh, as Buddy Ryan called him, the guy in France, uh, <laughs> because he spent most of the summer living in France. Uh, he fired Buddy Ryan, and then he called up to his office two coaches uh, who he said he was going to pick between uh, to make the head coach. And it was Rich Kotite, who was the offensive coordinator, and then the defensive coordinator. Can you guess who that was, Mark? I'm at a loss. I don't know. Jeff Fisher was the D coordinator, and he went with Rich Kotite. Whoops. uh, As a a young man, uh, you know, Growing up in the, uh, you know, the late '90s, early 2000s, I, I much would have preferred uh, Jeff Fisher. It was kind of before <laughs> he became like the seven and nine, eight and eight punchline guy. But he was actually mm-hmm. a very good coach for. He had a nice know, run uh, with Tennessee. Yeah, with Tennessee. So mm-hmm. yeah, they went with yeah Rich Kotite. He was fired after '94. Then it was Ray Rhodes for a couple of years, and then Big Red Andy Reid took over for right. a very long time. So, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah. Great book. Really, really recommend it if you, uh, if you want to read a book about football. So if you're just joining Beyond the Huddle, it's Mark Green, Andy <laughs> McCullough here. <laughs> I think that's one of the three best books ever written of, about football. I think it's that, uh, Friday Night Lights, 
and uh, Collision Low Crossers by Nicholas uh, Davidoff, uh, which is about the 2012, maybe 2013 Jets. Um, huh. But has that book has an access to the coaches in a way that explains, at the very least, what modern football was like, you know, seven or eight years ago, better than anything I've ever read. So. Huh. Yeah. Well, those are good. Friday Night Lights, I, I feel like I read it in like in one day. I couldn't put it yeah. down the first time I read yeah. it. It was like it blew my mind. It was so good. Yeah, that's the yeah, that's the book more than any other that made me want to write for a living. I really? Think. Yeah. How old yeah. were you when you read it the first time? Because it came out, I feel like late eighties, right? Late eighties, early nineties. It came out in nineteen ninety. Okay. Um, but it's set during the eighty eight season. Uh huh. I would say I probably read it when I was eleven or twelve the first time. My dad had a copy. Um I might have read it when I was 10. I don't know. I, I read it like before high school for sure. And it was very, because I was like obsessed with football, you know, as like a kid, I played football and it was like, you know, the most important thing uh, in my life. And then uh, when I read about Friday Night Lights, I loved it for the depiction of the football and the sort of like, you know, what, what Permian, the football team meant to the, you know. To the I, like, I didn't really get the like socio political aspect of it. That part didn't come through until like I reread it when I was in college or something like that. But um, and that part I still think like comes through very strongly. But just the the way that you know Buzz Bissinger sort of just like got to understand, like he explained high school football and just what it means to be a football player. I think in a way that was like real that really really connected with me as like a you know a twelve year old I guess who like wanted that sort of existence um and yeah i mean i still yeah i mean i still think about that's that's definitely the book that pushed me toward writing more than anything else dude i i was i was a freshman in high school i used to go to a bookstore in town and i would just you know walk the aisles and see if there was something random so i'd never like heard of the book ever Mm -hmm. uh i saw it there and i think i read like half of the first chapter and I was like, yeah. well, I'm, I walked out of there with it. And then pretty much, you know, I was done before I went to bed that night. Yeah. Like, and I remember just like, you know, and I kind of at that point knew that I wanted to do this, mm-hmm. but I, there's like this buzz that you get when you realize you've read something that you're mm-hmm. going to read over and over and over again. Yeah. And, and, and that was one of the first times I remember just going, Oh my God. That's yeah. like, you know, and I can remember like the ones that, you know, I'm looking at the book right now. I have a Gay Talese reader here, uh, mm-hmm. Gay's profile on DiMaggio. Yeah. Remember the first time I read that, just going, holy shit. Yeah. Like it just, it's mind blowing, right? Uh, you know, so we go on and on, but yeah, I mean that, wow, what a great book. It, I'm, it's so funny that it came up. Like I'm, I'm probably going to end up like pulling it out and reading it again. Dude, it's so yeah. good. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. Would, yeah. Hey, if, if you guys are in the market for a, a hot new book to read this <laughs> fall, you should read Friday Night Lights by H.G. Bissinger, a former oh. writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Hot um, new book. It's great. Yeah. Strongly recommend it. Um, yeah. What are we talking about? Oh, yeah, baseball. They're playing that still, huh? Oh, here. You want a tie-in? Here's a tie-in. You ready? Okay. You got it. Okay. The last time the Yankees finished the baseball season <laughs> with a losing record, okay? Friday Night Lights was only two years old. Wow. So it was 1990? Uh, well, Friday Night Lights came out in 90. Oh, 92. Right? Yeah, 92. 92. Yeah. Right. Like, think about that. Yeah. 1992. So the Yankees, like, kind of stink, huh? Dude, I think they stink. That's yeah. not good. 
that's crazy because you know look they're all hurt there's a lot right. of guys who are hurt so in fairness um this is not a representative team but there are also guys who aren't hurt mm-hmm. and are just bad mm-hmm. right now and the fact that it's all happening at once is like surreal to watch the last couple of weeks watching this baseball team mm-hmm. it's it's like those old commercials like let's see if we could replace the mets with the yankees will anybody <laughs> notice yeah people notice <laughs> oh, like no. they're doing like these met like things where they're like snatching victory right out of the, you know like uh like they, they have winds are just like blowing uh in these myriad ways and it is um you know you know it's something when when brian cashman is showing up and doing the team meetings yeah you know like that's, yeah, that's not uh, how you draw it up no it's not and and Actually, I was talking to a couple of, of people yesterday who'd covered the team for a while, trying to figure out when was the last time he did that. Mm-hmm. And it was performance-based. Because, you know, he aired him out. Right. I think it was last spring after in the aftermath of the uh, they had that share, playoff share controversy. Oh, yeah, yeah, And yeah. he didn't like how that played out. Right. And, and, you know, his message to them was like, we're the Yankees. We don't do that shit. Right. Um, right. You know, so, but performance-wise on the field, I, yeah. I, I think... I might have been there for it. It was 2009. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, one of, one of the, the qualities of Cashman's leadership, especially public facing, is he is like very difficult to rattle. You know, like yes. he is exceedingly even keeled. And that's, you know, I mean, that's how you get to run the Yankees baseball ops department for, what is it, you know, 22 years mm-hmm. now? Like, mm-hmm. you, you can't sort of be, uh, you know, irrational, I guess. Um, but like he was talking, I, I wrote something just kind of about the um, expanded playoffs like a couple weeks ago, and the team was you know playing poorly, and you know, and he was just very very calm and saying you know like saying like oh we just got to get healthy or you know we just got to make sure everyone's in place like when uh, the postseason starts you know that's when it really matters and it's kind of you know it's almost like the, you know the past ten days or so have have heightened his sense of urgency which for. In, you know, if you speak Cashman, that seems like something close to a panic button almost. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, look, number one, like, and just for context, what you're saying for folks who are not familiar about the Cashman being this even killed, it would be news when he showed up on a road trip. Right. Because, you right. know, like, it, I mean, there are certain cities where he was always there, like, because, like, he liked to go to, to Baltimore because DC's right there and he's got a deep connection to that city, right. right? Like, he'd gone to school there, a lot of connections there, knows a lot of people there. But if he'd show up somewhere that wasn't expected, the whole beach is like, whoa, yeah. what is going on here? And then when he took the extra step of, of, like, you know, talking about, you know, talking to the team directly, then it was just like, right. You know, like, in, so it, it was June of 2009. Mm-hmm. And the Yankees that year, you know, obviously they won the World Series, but they started slow, all right? Like, their April was really uneven. Um, uh, guys were getting hurt, and, and they were kind of muddling through. Then they took off for a while. Like, they, mm-hmm. they, like, you know, were looking really good. Then they hit another slow patch. And I remember, like, they were playing a bunch of National League teams, and there was, like, a lot of talk about Matsui being pissed that he wasn't playing in the field. Like, you know, and then they just weren't pitching well. Anyway... Cashman shows up in Atlanta mm-hmm. and I remember like we're standing in the clubhouse and he comes walking through his bag and it was just like a, 
like record scratch, mm. like in a movie. You know what I mean? Like in the bar, like, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh crap. Right. What's he doing here? Right out of the office, shut the door. Mm-hmm. You know, it turns out he addressed the team that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the rest is history. They took off after that. But, <clears throat> but yeah, like he's so even keeled. His reputation is so well established in that regard that any break, uh, any deviation, is literally newsworthy. So yeah. what he did yesterday was a big deal. And the fact that they still laid an egg uh, after all that is also pretty noteworthy. Not that like Brian Cashman's words are going to you know change an outcome, but right. I do think it, it, it does speak to where they're at right now, and it is not a good place. Yeah, they're, they're just not... Uh... They're just not very good. I don't, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, there's the injuries are obviously a huge problem when you have, you know, Aaron Judge, Stanton, and uh, Gio Urshela all on the on the IL. But, like, I don't know. I mean, they're just sort of not getting representative performance from some of the guys, you know, they were, they were counting on. I mean, the, you know, Gary Sanchez has kind of turned into, like, a, you know, it's like a nightly crucible watching him where there's just, you know, it's kind of brutal in some sense. You feel bad for the guy. Um, kind of, the, you know, he clanked one, you know, had made, like, an error in the field last night on a play where you're just like, this, wow, that just, that seems off. Like, that just, you know what I mean? Like, it so, just, yeah, it feels like compounding on itself. And the 3-2. That one has popped up. Sanchez drops the ball. I don't know which broadcast you were watching. I was watching Yes last night. And uh, so the play you're talking about is a pop-up in the foul yeah. ground behind home plate, a, a really high one. And here's, you know, Sanchez. And But because of the setup with the pandemic, right? Like, I think sometimes the camera shots are kind of weird. They don't switch over quickly enough. So usually on a ball like that, a pop-up, you get the wide view of the field. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason yesterday, the, the camera was just at field level focused entirely on Gary Sanchez looking up. Mm. Okay. And the way he kind of moved and there was a look on his face. Oh, the last no. time I saw that, Andy, was Luis really? Castillo. Yep. Yep. Like the same, like, oh, <laughs> yeah. shit. Like he was like this kind of unnatural movement. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, And then yeah. sure enough, bang. Like, you know, and then and defend, like Castillo's probably is actually much tougher than this yeah. one. Like, I mean, this is a pop-up right behind him. It's something a catcher does a million times. But that's the kind of season that they're having. And, you know, he's become, again, Gary Sanchez has become emblematic of what their issues are. So here's one of these guys what? who is Why healthy. do you think that is? Gary? Yeah. Because uh, I do you think, think he's an is? easy, he's a, first of all, he's an easy target. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I honestly believe that part of it is because there's a language barrier. He's never going to fire back. Right. Okay. So it's like if you're looking to take a free shot at somebody, that's the guy. All right. Because there's never going to be a blowback there. Um, You know, and also because of the type of player that he is. I Mm -hmm. I mean, I think Gary Sanchez on the whole is a very good baseball player, obviously. Mm -hmm. But when you have those types of highs and lows, which is yeah. not unique, right? Like we can name a lot of players that have had careers like that, Correct. generally speaking. I mean, Curtis Granderson, for probably the latter half of his career, was that guy. Right. Where he right, was right. just yeah. disappeared for like a month, and mm-hmm. then there was three weeks where you could not get him out. Okay? Right. Gary Sanchez is a more extreme version of that. So mm-hmm. I think that's why he becomes the target <clears throat> and the face, because a lot of times he's just easy to take the shot at. And you know what? 
it is such a wide range where I mean you start to wonder it's like that someone brought this up and it was, I thought it was a kind of a fun comp Markel Fultz where okay. you're just like is it like something in his head like is it you know mm-hmm. like how can it, where, where someone looks like as if they're learning to play the sport for the first time mm-hmm. right like did, did he take because of what's going on at the plate is, is why we're seeing a past balls again mm-hmm. and all this stuff mm-hmm. like and and you know the fact that I couldn't just dismiss it out of hand right was was funny to me it's like whoa wait a minute I mean I don't I don't think that's what's going on okay but his performance is so wide as far mm-hmm. as variance that you can't rule it out either yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting point I mean I think there are there are certainly players who go through those boom or bust cycles. I mean, I covered Yasmani Grandal, who had that to extremes, but he never really became the focal point of frustration among Dodgers fans. At some point, it just kind of got baked into the calculus that, like, hey, for you know a week, this guy is going to be Johnny Bench, and then for you know two weeks, he's not going to be particularly good, and that's just who he is as a player. And I wonder why there hasn't. I mean, I guess because the extremes are are like the 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 downside with Sanchez is more pronounced uh, mm-hmm. is is maybe why that there's um that there's less sort of just acceptance of who he is as a player. I don't know. You know what? you phrased the question the last time and it triggered a thought. I, I'll tell you what I think what it is. How do we consume a baseball game? Where's the camera angle? Right behind uh, the pitcher. Yeah, okay. Literally every pitch that's thrown, that's Gary Sanchez right in the middle of your screen. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he struggles with is literally catching a baseball thrown by a pitcher. So there's no hiding. Like (laughs) everyone can see it and it's constant. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think that's it. Or one of the reasons. I think also because... What I just described there, like one of the things he doesn't do well is catch the ball. Right. And right. and you have a fan base that, you know, and we'll get into this, right? James Fegan's on today. Yeah. Um, our White Sox writer and, you know, uh, like the, talking about fan bases and sort of what their characteristics are. I think the Yankees fan base, um, you know, they've become a bunch of perfectionists. So mm. to see something that is perceived to be so easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, catching a pitched baseball um, for a catcher, right? Like that right. should be like, you shouldn't even have to think about that. And yet here we are where, you know, past balls mount up. Like there are times where it looks like he's not moving real well back there or right. it's just, you know, straight up carelessness, right? A ball just glance off his mitt or as we saw again last night, pop up that doesn't get caught. Um, I think it's like, a, there's like, those things drive the fans insane yeah. and already, and it's just all amplified by the fact that he is a catcher and, and you see it constantly. And right. also, frankly, he's not going to fire back. Okay. Right. Like Gary Sanchez uses a translator, does, you know, doesn't speak English or is not comfortable enough to speak English in a public right. setting, which I totally get. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you know, I, I get it. But I think it also, frankly, and this is not a nice reflection, but I think it's the truth. Like, it, it, I think it opens him up for more criticism, which is clearly right. not fair. Okay, that, that's a shitty undercurrent to have, but I think it's there. So yeah. you put it all together, and, and that's how he ends up being the face. And that's interesting. You, you mentioned the Grandal comp. I wouldn't have thought of that. Right? I know that he's that kind of player sometimes, yeah. but you're right. Like, it was never this thing where everybody piled on. No, it was never – no, it was never – you know, and there were times where Grandal, you know, like 
really struggled receiving the baseball. And what the Dodgers did is just played Austin Barnes. And mm-hmm. everyone, you know, everyone moved on. Um, and it just, you know, it, it was no, like, it. I don't know. It's just, it's interesting how, you know, certain players become lightning rods and similar situations, you know, huge market, like mm-hmm. tons of pressure, tons of, you know, and like Dodgers fans are, I, I, I wouldn't describe them as perfectionists per se, but they accept very little than winning a title. So their expectations are incredibly high. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know they're they're basically you know there there's not a lot of joy in the in the journey, I guess you know among <laughs> Dodgers fans because frankly the you know the team's been really good for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. So there is like they would and they also haven't won a World Series since 1988. So yeah. I get it. Um, but yeah, like Grandal never, you know I, I guess he's I guess he never had a situation where he was hitting like 125 this deep into. <sighs> A season, but it was you know never came close to you know this level of vitriol. I guess it's interesting. No. I don't know. It's weird how you know these things work out. Yeah, it's it's funny you talk about the Dodgers. Like I wrote a column like last week, and mm-hmm. one of the, I made a reference about how good they were, but like it wasn't super emphasized. And so, uh-huh. oh yeah, it was I was writing about the Padres. Ah, oh, the Padres are great, right? And then there's some commenter on there just like all salty. Oh, man, like no one ever talks about how good the Dodgers are. And like <laughs> I almost wanted to respond with what you just said. You know, no one gives a shit about the journey right now. Like the Dodgers, yeah. like uh, they've been so good for so long. Like wake me in October kind yeah. of thing. And like, look, I think that's a compliment. If you can get to that point yes. as a franchise, that's a compliment. Yeah. But like, let's not. Let's not start with the, oh, let's, let's talk about great the Dodgers. We all know. We know. We know. Like, I mean, the they're on pace. underrated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that should be yeah. next week's column. Yeah. Why the Dodgers are underrated? They're only going to win 116 yeah. games projected. Like, in a re- yeah. you know, they're on a 116 win pace. Yeah, they're right very now. good. They're they're underrated, Jeez, they're and, and Friday Night Lights <laughs> is a, is a decent book. So you new learn book. lots of stuff fresh here. new book. New yes. book. Yeah. Hey, we're gonna get to our interview with James. Uh, this was a fun one. Uh, we will be back momentarily. And so we are here with our guest today. It's James Fegan. He covers the White Sox for us. James, how are you? I'm all right. How about you? I'm, what is your hair plan? Do you have uh, a hair plan? It's it's pretty detailed. I I have three different styling products in my home, but uh, none of them are in use at the moment because I didn't know I was going to be on video. It looks good. It's got it's got a lot of volume. It does look very, good, yeah. man. It's got like that. It's got some Bruno Mars it's going aesthetically in there. pleasing. I would say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you play the piano and sing by chance? Because like uh, neither. Oh really? Dang. Because you know, uh, the, I'm, the hairdo would I'm have taller told than me. Bruno Mars. I got that's that going. Nice. Well, that's good. Most everybody is though, is my understanding. Is he not a tall man? I don't think so. He's, he's a tiny singing child. He's a very talented fellow. I'm looking it up. Well, he's also Filipino, so I'm like biased. He's five foot yeah. five. That's not. I mean, yeah. that's not. That's not tall. That's not man. notably short. It's, I guess shorter not. than Nick Madrigal. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. He, could he get a could he get a deal with Ash and Erie to sell clothes? Wow, here we go. <laughs> now you're playing with fire, bro. Uh, just, just full disclosure, I have nothing to do with Ken, this part Ken of the conversation. Me. This is all in. Hey, so we're talking This is all in. We're talking about the White Hawk, the White the White Hawks, the White Sox. Uh Pale Hose. They uh they are tied for first place right now with the with the Indians. I guess like the standings don't exactly matter, but 
I would assume that the White Sox would be fairly motivated to try and win the division just because there's some ancillary benefit to it this year, right? I guess. <laughs> you tell me. I mean, it doesn't really matter. Like, like, I don't know when they clinch, but I assume it's it's going to be like mm-hmm. next week or something when they actually clinch a playoff spot. Like, yeah, I, I assume they would they would definitely tout it from the high heavens if they actually did win, but... I don't sense it's a uh, you know AL Central or or die type mm-hmm. of mentality for anybody. I, I think Dallas Keuchel's mom um, in in spring training said something like "playoffs or die, bitch." Or yeah, something she like did that. say something kind of crazy. I, I, <laughs> I don't think it was AL Central first place. Um, if we don't beat the Indians, uh, he's opting out type of situation. Dude, even even the players' families are decent quotes on that team. That's freaking great, man. Yeah. The Giolitos have uh, served me served me well. Can't complain. About Tim Anderson too. My goodness, like his last Zoom call or a couple weeks ago, Zoom call sounds like that was a riot too. Like, um, what are these guys like, man? Like, I mean, we know they're good at baseball, but could you describe to folks kind of the personality of this group? Hmm. Uh, I mean, it would. I guess it would lean a lot into the sort of sort of cliches of, uh, oh, these guys are so much fun and they love each other and whatnot. But, and you know, it's hard for me to gauge too much since it's the only team I've ever really covered on a beat, and I assume it's a lot of the same BS that you uh, hear across <laughs> the league. But it, it does seem legitimately fun-loving, I guess. Uh, they, you definitely hear them. Um, you know, you can hear them screaming and whatnot over the broadcast all the time for every big hit, and they've always—they're a group that's been through the the, the shit mm-hmm. together for around the three years. They all um, they all went through like the rebuild for the most part. I think um, after some bad loss at some point this season, we asked Tim Anderson about it, like how did they bounce back or from this stretch, and he's like, "I've been getting—we've been getting our heads kicked in since the moment I came <laughs> into the league. This is nothing." So. <laughs> It's a somewhat of a loose atmosphere, I would say. I mean, the the main there's no like old crank who's like the the top player on the team they're dealing with. It's mostly Jose Abreu keeping them to himself in his little uh, like they have like a Cuban corner of their clubhouse that he's like in with Juan Mancada mm-hmm. and uh, Grandal and whatnot of and, and they're very like quiet and reserved and um, always filling in this peacefully seasoning their huge bag of dip that they share before the game i don't know how that's applied to 2020 but it's it's a very communal atmosphere and um you know it seems friendly it's not like you know some it's not a bunch of bitter 30 something guys who are uh you know laying down the law and uh you know trying to make tim anderson behave like an old school guy or anything like that and like when when, when tim is like one of your most senior members of the team it, it's hard to really be the type of typical cranky baseball team you think of. Do you, um, did part of the like calculus in how they've done this rebuild, would it be that these young guys would, you don't plan for this, but they might benefit from going through failure together at the big leagues. Like the Royals kind of had that idea when they were bringing up like Eric Hosmer and Mike Moustakas and Salvador Perez that like, they weren't exactly ready to win, but they're ready to learn. Like how it works? Do you think is that was that? I mean, I know Chris Getz came up was with the Royals for a while before he came over to be farm director. Do you think there's any transfer there? Or is that just kind of uh, specious? They certainly knew that was going to happen with the team that they're putting out. So <laughs> like if they didn't have a plan for them to learn through losing, um, 
<laughs> that was going to happen. Like the 2018 team was very terrible and was going to get hammered. So if they didn't have a plan, I mean, that's kind of how they got value out of like what they acquired. Lucas Giolito was not mm-hmm. ready to help a contender in 2017 or 2018. Neither was like Tim Anderson. I mean, he just kind of, we all think of him as, or I think his national profile is batting champion, but um, you know, he couldn't get his OBP above mm-hmm. 300 for the first two seasons I was covering him because, like, his approach wasn't there. So they knew that they were not going to be, like, functional early on. Uh, you know, Yamankata had, like, long – he basically needed a season and a half mm-hmm. to be any good, and, you know, now he's got, you know, the Rona after effects, and that's a whole separate thing. But, um, yeah, I, I think they had to know that was part of it. I, I, I don't know if it's necessarily this will be great mm-hmm. uh, getting their uh, – butt kick but they definitely like these guys need a low pressure environment to come into their own because none of them are really uh you know prime time ready mm-hmm. off the bat james did you think coming into this season that this was going to be the outcome where you know they're good at baseball they're a lot of fun i think they're super compelling they're fun to watch did you see that kind of coalescing now or did you think it would take a little bit more time I thought it'd be less consistent. Um, I still think they're probably getting away a little bit with their rotation. Yeah. I think Dylan Cease is like ERA is like something like two or three runs under his FIP. Like there's a little bit of horseshoe going on there. Um, I thought we'd get the Luis Robert highlights. I didn't think it'd be as, um, you know, I, I, I thought we'd see diving catches or huge home runs uh, and that would make national highlights. I didn't think that the, 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 the batting line would be like a, a 550 slugging on top of that. I, I thought it'd be a lot more scattershot and a lot more games where he was over four with three strikeouts. I definitely didn't see 33 year old Jose Abreu like going ballistic. Um, he, he'd been clearly in a decline phase for the past, past three seasons. Um, he had a, what's, what's the, he had testicular torsion at the end of 2018. Um, in addition to like a, a thigh infection, it, it Everything just kind of seemed like there it was kind of breaking down uh, for him a little bit, and it very much seemed like a Jerry Reinsdorf loves this guy, so he's getting a contract until he mm-hmm. falls apart type of deal. And instead, he's hitting like he when he first came over from Cuba, which I don't know if it would last over the course of a 160 game season. Thankfully, um, I won't really have to analyze uh, that kind of tough question because um, everyone just calls me a joyless jerk when I do stuff. It's like <laughs> so great. Dude, Abreu had six bombs in one weekend, didn't he? Yeah, he had six home runs at Wrigley Field. There was some stat like Ian Hat only recently took over <laughs> as the guy who's hit the most home runs at Wrigley Field this season. Uh, explain this comment to me, and, and you wrote about this not too long ago. And I don't know if you saw this quote, Andy, but I'll, I'll read this out loud. You have lost to the Cuban piss missile crisis. <laughs> Uh, that is a, that is a meme that Lucas, Lucas Giolito's younger brother sent him after like, I forget what game it was. I think it was the, the game against the twins where Luis Robert hit like a home run off like the little, the little like second deck overhang, uh, at dead center field. Wow. Off like a, a hanging Trevor May slider. Um, yeah, it's, <laughs> It's Robert's been really good. Uh, what can I say? Um, they definitely have leveraged this whole like 
I mean, they got Luis Robert because they offered him the most money, right? right? He was a 19-year-old who had never played, you know, stateside, and they offered him $26 million with an accompanying, like, $24 million penalty. So they paid up to get him, but it's definitely a continuation of leveraging this whole um, connection that they have, that, and it's something they try to emphasize in their history, that we're the franchise that had Mini Minoso, we had Jose Contreras win a World Series with us. We had Alexei Ramirez. We had Diane Vicieto. We have Jose Abreu here now. We'll continue to employ him as a mentor past his effectiveness um, just because we care about you so much. Juan Moncada is here. Look at him. Uh, Boston probably would have been so kind to him, but, you know, here he is. He's allowed to do his own thing. Wouldn't you feel welcome here? So that's that's the thing they've been emphasizing forever. So the fact that they have now um, a whole culture around their fans embracing the idea we're just always going to have the top cuban players all the time and really internationally it's the only place that they've really had a lot of sustained success in any way um I, yeah it, it makes they would be the team that has a goofy piss missile <laughs> meme i am <laughs> mostly as a ball writer just excited that piss missile can can enter the lexicon uh more more regularly i hope i hear steve stone say piss missile on air at some point wait piss um, missile's not a thing though right it's piss rocket i think you know there's a lot of uh, room for piss weaponry <laughs> uh, that people can kind of play around with as as it becomes more mainstream <laughs> all right all right i like it i like it. Uh, pioneering I just uh, Urban Dictionary, the definitive source here, uh, has piss missile as um, in sports, whether it be baseball, football, hockey, what have you. When someone crushes a homer, launches a sixty-yard touchdown pass, or nets a goal from the blue line on a one-timer, that is oddly specific. But apparently, that's what it is. Uh, I I can't yeah. imagine calling something yeah, football. Yeah, football a piss one doesn't missile. make sense. No, the hockey ones again. That that seems very um, super specific, but whatever. I like the terminology anyway. Uh, how does that play? How does this team play in Chicago? Like, and and I ask that because Chicago is such an in, like it's a different place. It's got its own dynamic. Um, you know, the Cubs are there, and you know the White Sox fan base is is like smaller, but like kind of unique. Like what? So how does this team's sort of personality mesh um, in that context? I mean, anything is fine when you're winning. So <laughs> right now, it's it's solid. Mm-hmm. I kind of wonder how well it'll go when they get to, like, where the Cubs are at right now in their run, where everybody's kind of expecting them to be good, and their, their standards are very high, but they're clearly in this decline phase and things are not working as well as they used to. Because this is not the... This is not a Chicago Tough, like, type group or anything like that. This is not, like... a you know, gritty, grindy team or anything like that that's been emphasized so much in the past or, you know, the way the 2005 team was sold uh, so much. Mm-hmm. Um, Eloy Menes is a, a enormous 242-pound, like, goofball. I, I don't think, like, people would think... They already don't really tolerate his defense that much, so him kind of smiling and laughing his way through slumps is probably not well-received. Um, all of, like, Tim Anderson's national stuff about, like, bring fun to the game and, um, you know, do it his own way. That plays well with, you know, people like us. But um, in, until he, when he's not hitting 360, mm-hmm. it was very much like, what about the errors? Maybe instead of bat flipping, you should take some infield practice. Stuff that is like a that. good idea, mm-hmm. actually, uh, it's, it's, if you think about it. 
<laughs> so it's very much like an athleticism and raw talent and um you know just a fun electric group but not like this not immune to mistakes not um you know necessarily the man they're just they're they don't, don't have the most talent but they're right. maximizing a type of group like they don't have many of those guys that you know you know cranky white suburban chicago fans right. would like um so so as long as they're hitting like you know uh 280 with like light tower power it, it plays great but uh I, I don't think it's it's not a it's not a match made in heaven but um no one really cares uh, when it, everyone's principles go out the window when the team is winning anyway, yeah so i mean is there is there a market where the team would want uh, you know, like the sort of like uncleanly but exciting baseball. I mean, it seems like just with the average age of baseball fan that they're always going to, you know, until like it, it lowers, I guess. It's just always going to be people asking, you know, questions like, what about the errors, you know, when a guy's bat flipping or something like that? You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't th- I, I can't any city I'd be saying that about maybe maybe Miami just doesn't give a shit but, but I, I don't I don't know there's probably a lot of seniors living right. there who are mad at Jazz Chisholm already um so yeah you're right it, it, that's that's kind of just the nature of baseball fandom a little bit but I I certainly don't think the White Sox are magically immune mm-hmm. to it even though their team is built around um just hitting 460 foot bombs and then you know break dancing and down the batting mm-hmm. line about it like. People are more excited about the bombs. You know, you, you touched on this a bit. And I actually, I don't know the answer to this at all. So I'm curious, right? Like, could you kind of give me the, a, a quick sketch of what it is to be a White Sox fan? Like, what, what is it? What are some of the core uh, characteristics of this group uh, from your view? Uh, grievance culture. Um <laughs> Uh, inferiority complex, um, <laughs> some, some sort of like connection to, uh, some working class identity that you haven't truly lived. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I wow. shouldn't like, I grew up a White yeah. Sox fan, so I shouldn't like, Im- no, but then you can, you can, then, you know, right? the, like, the whole point of the whole point context. of getting to a million subscribers isn't to immediately piss them all off, James, just so right, you know, right. <laughs> It's like getting to the major leagues, you know. You can make it. The hard part staying at a million, right? Okay, and like this, we're starting. To, we're starting to backslide here, yeah. but like, I mean, no, for real. Like that's important context. You grew up as one, so like I think that's huge. Like so, keep going because I'm fascinated. Yeah. Grievance. Well, culture. when I grew up, <laughs> go on. I when I grew up as one on the south side, I. When I was in high school, um, my mother sent me to a um, the one public school they have for smart kids in town, which is, of course, on the north side. And all, all the kids there are Cubs fans, and they, like, gave me shit all day. Mm-hmm. And that is – so I felt like that's an archetypal experience of just being very bitter and angry about – I mean, legitimately, the, the Cubs were owned by the Chicago Tribune for, like, the – you know, up until uh, you know, mm-hmm. Ricketts. Mm-hmm. And um, so there, it wasn't entirely just projection to think that there was a more media emphasis on the Cubs. Uh, you know, they seemingly have a bigger, more national fan base. There's it, it, a constant sense that you're not getting enough uh, attention. And as a result, that you've worked for everything that you have, that everything, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they kind of have this weird 
despite being in the third biggest media market uh, in the country, they're, they're kind of tucked away. They kind of behave a little bit like a small market team. And mm-hmm. the fact that they did a rebuild, like the way they did in the first place. And there, there's, there's this sense of fighting to prove themselves all the time. Um, there, there, it's a very like up until Reinsdorf, uh, you know, bought the team in the eighties. It was a very oddball mm-hmm. franchise as well. Um, you know, you had, you know, Bill Veck and all the weird, um, you know, quirks that the team had back then. And, you know, being the first team to have, um, you know, the exploding scoreboard or at least touting themselves as much as that with, with fireworks, having that really kind of uh, nightmarish when you look back on it, uh, social episode of Disco Demolition <laughs> that is still embraced just because it was, you know, unique and strange and that's what the team identity is. Uh, it, it's very this kind of, um, you know, little brother idea or, you know, stepchild uh, type of mentality. And thus they are very much embracing this team that's putting them on a national like people will be excited that i'm on a national podcast just because that's how much they think like the white Sox don't get enough respect type of uh situation how much they uh, they feel like the they've been ignored or or stepped on or uh, you know not given an, uh, enough regard wow. why were you were Man, you a white a... Sox fan growing up just because you grew up on the south side yeah, it's it just a, a proximity, and my family is from uh, farther south side. Like, I could hear fireworks from the White Sox Stadium uh, in my backyard. Um, and, yeah, so... What would Cubs fans... Everyone in my family How was. would Cubs fans insult you? I mean, they were the Cubs. I don't really... Cubs! You're both losers. Uh, I went I went to high school in the early 2000s when, like, um, the Cubs were, like, decent-ish uh, or playoff-bound. Like, that was the, that was the Kerry Woody and Mark, Mark Pryor years. Um, so, I don't know. They were, they were competitive. Um, I don't know. Just south side is trashy, oh, stuff like that. Nice. That's nice. <laughs> that's lovely. Who's your favorite player, then? I'm just curious. Um, I had some weird, like, draft situation with my older sister. Where she got to pick who her favorite player was first. Huh. <laughs> so like, for the Bulls, like Michael Jordan was her Angela's favorite player. So I got to I had to identify with Scottie Pippen, and so she got to pick Frank Thomas. So my favorite player, as a result, is just Robin Ventura because I had to pick second. Like mm. it didn't make sense to me, but that's how it was. Huh. So it was it was a uh, you know definitely a thrill to um, pitch in and, and cover him and ask why he's like batting Diane Viciato so high in the batting order uh, as, a, mm-hmm. as an adult. How I'm curious like how you feel about this because I think there's there's a on the one hand I think when someone starts covering a team I think there's benefit to having like sort of fresh eyes on the situation and maybe not you know being knowing a ton about the sort of the how the fan base thinks and you know coming at it from an outside perspective but I also think there's obviously a uh, huge benefit sometimes to like being steeped in the history, and I'm just curious, like how you think that maybe informs the work you're doing now, even maybe at like a subconscious level. Well, it'd be subconscious. So how the hell well, would I know? Suss it Andy? out, um... man. <laughs> <laughs> you want to come on this podcast? You got to work. You know, you're not Evan Drellick. We, we, you know, I got to be a returning champ. Um, I definitely can. <laughs> I probably anticipate how they'll respond to things uh, a little bit. I, I probably get a bit more why like some things aren't well going to be well received. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I feel like a lot of beat writers probably maybe across baseball don't get why um, fans react negatively to things mm-hmm. or why um, 
fans don't see rationality. And I kind of think fans have probably been conditioned into the insane monsters we we make them Mm -hmm. into. They kind of get gaslit in a way where everything in spring training is positive Mm -hmm. and um, everything is optimistic and every prospect they acquire throughout the rebuild is going to work out Mm -hmm. and be a all-star outfielder and not just some guy who gets DFA'd for Mm 40-man space in four years. Um, We know when we're writing it, uh, you know, this is an optimistic, rosy thing. This is spring training optimism, but they read everything literally and Mm -hmm. are wondering why Blake Rutherford is not the starting right fielder four years later or Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, So I, I feel like I probably see that coming a little bit more or understand that the White Sox have been fans have been sold a bill of goods or the fact that like people wonder why they're impatient, but I know from watching team, like they haven't made the playoffs since 2008. Right. Um, they haven't <clears throat> been a winning team since 2012. And like the leadership hasn't really turned over in any right. significant way during that time. Like they, they, they already feel like they have been patient. They already feel like they have seen a project mm-hmm. out to its full extent. And no, there's not like any going to be, it's not simply a concern of like, why can't they see that they'll be good in a year or two? Mm-hmm. Or why can't they see this is, uh, you know, it w- wouldn't make sense to fence a bunch of prospects for bullpen help in the middle of the six. Is that wine? Um, it's coffee in a wine, <laughs> in a wine glass. In a wine glass. <laughs> uh, Look, yeah, man, but... I'm trying to make the most of my life. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, you, you can, you can see why the, the, the patience is kind of gone. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, why they this is like the first year that's as much as it's like a bullshit season that we all know is like totally bastardized and stuff like that like this is the first thing they've had to embrace in over a decade mm-hmm. and there's a reason why they're very like intense about you know who pitched the freaking top right. of the seventh uh, the other day right yeah it, you understand that like the team hasn't earned the benefit of the doubt when it comes to patience Exactly. Yeah. Benefit of the doubt is definitely the way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Like I felt, James, I felt like, like times like covering the Dodgers. You know, like when in like 2018 or something, when fans would be like freaking out about you know just or maybe 17 is a better example because in 2018 they kind of stunk. But like in you know fans would be upset about like a bullpen choice in April when you kind of just want to say like none of this matters. They're going to be in the postseason. But then it's also like, well, why are they reading? We have to dance the line of like explaining what why what we're doing is useful i guess without you know like i don't know it just it yeah it, it leads to schizophrenia sometimes and how you how you try and frame things yeah i i definitely feel like i'm losing my mind uh <laughs> <laughs> trying to trying to explain why jimmy cordero is uh pitching the bottom of the ninth inning and mostly like you know he thought the pirates sucked enough that jimmy would get them out <laughs> makes sense yeah you you mentioned this earlier, James. Like there hasn't been significant turnover in in the leadership group there, and you could extend that obviously to ownership. I think Reinsdorf has owned the team since what nineteen eighty or something like that. Eighty one, um, I want to say. Eighty one. Like I mean, he's you know one of the most powerful owners in the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, clearly one of the most established. And I just wonder, like you know, given how long it's been since they've won, and 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 you've referenced the patience the fans have had to show. How do they view his stewardship of the team, the fan base? What I get is intensely negative. Right, right. <laughs> but we did do that survey thing that every other writer did when they were totally out of ideas. And, like, <laughs> the it was really, like, 50-50, which I was surprised about. And I don't know if there's, like, a, 
the dreaded silent majority or, or right. something that is mostly okay with the fact like or just thinks like hey they won a world series how bad could it have been like uh you know that he just gets like the benefit of the doubt uh because you know they, they had like a multi-decade drought and he was on hand for them ending it so how bad could really things be and maybe like you know they definitely don't hold the franchise to like a yankees or dodgers level standard in any way so they're just not that bad about it um Maybe maybe a lot of uh, you know the American population just uh, worships executives no matter what. Who knows? But um, yeah, I, I found a lot. All I get is that this team, like as far as vocal response, is that the team is cheap. That the team, um, you know, if you look at the caps to draft spending and the caps mm-hmm. to international spending, that's kind of very notably has curved to how the White Sox were already operating. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm. given that you mentioned that Ryan Zerbin has powerful influence in the league as is, it seems like things, the, the league has imposed restrictions that kind of uh, line up with how he is already operating the franchise, right. which kind of you know increases the idea that he's just trying to, you know, reduce spending as much as possible or, or within what he feels is a reasonable amount. Um, so yeah, I, I think they they largely there, there's definitely a camp of fans that thinks that they'll never really be a top tier franchise until he's gone. Um, to which I would say, you know, imagine what you're going to get taking over him. Mm. <laughs> I don't know why mm. you think it's going to be better, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's largely negative, like it should be. I guess with probably any owner. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. I do, does. Is there is it like tied in with an assessment of his ownership of the Bulls, or is it like separated in a way? That I think is more hysterical from the Bulls end okay. because he said all this stuff um, about how he likes baseball more. Okay, <laughs> and so the Bulls fans have this constant like conflicts of like uh, that. Jerry Reinsdorf has not, the Bulls didn't add anybody at the trade deadline or they didn't mm-hmm. spend as much in the draft because like Reinsdorf was busy like building a new addition to Paul Canerico's house <laughs> and he was too obsessed with like, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're, like con- they're like convinced that like they, they didn't add enough to the Derrick Rose core because they're giving Gavin Floyd an extension and stuff like that. They, their kind of victim complex about right. it is very amusing to see because like especially since those fan bases are a little bit silent from one another. So right. it's like Reinsdorf is, uh, you know, lavishing expenses on the White Sox while the Bulls are dying on the vine and the White Sox fans are like, what? No, <laughs> that's not how, this is not how it works here at all. <laughs> but yeah, they're viewed as being, uh, you know, similarly ran for sure. Yeah. But you, you think the fan bases are silent? Like they're from, they're not, there's not a lot of overlap. There is some, but I, enough to see these kind of wild mis- right. misconceptions about like the idea that like the, the 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 baseball team is the only child he really loves, yeah. and like they could lavish. The, you know, it's like no, they're still run very much very um, sh- shrewdishly, like the the whole way through. Right. I'm just trying to think of like what did Paul Canerco do with that new room in the addition? Did he go Mediterranean with that, or did he go more contemporary? Like. Like just the vision, the vi- the visual is hilarious to me. Like signing a check and then building on to Paul Conerco's house somewhere is too good. Um, like, do you? You said this. Like the White Sox is a top tier franchise. 
I mean, is it possible? Like, it, I mean, is that like you would think playing in that market, it would be because like I, I come across this having covered the Mets all those years. There's always this like thought, OK, when the Wilpons are gone, boy, that just changes everything. Um, and I've always wondered if it actually will. Like, do you think the White Sox have it in them to ever kind of flip the switch and be, um, you know, cub-like in that way and and you know with all of the things that come along with that right higher standards all uh, and and i guess the fans would expect more like do you ever see that happening or potentially happening i mean yeah i mean if they change ownership it's possible and you know jerry's not gonna live uh you know five thousand years unless he has that's he's been squirreling away resources to for a, a magic uh cure whatever but you're rolling the dice every time you kind of have a change in ownership, right? And given the, you know, looking at the 30 teams, you're most likely to get a bad result and have another team that's being run on a, you know, a budget that probably doesn't allow for like endless uh, contention. You know, I, I don't think that the, the Guggenheims are lining up to buy the, the White Sox necessarily. So it, it, it could happen, but I don't necessarily think there's a framework to expect that it would. I, I, I it's more likely than not they I don't think they're going to like downgrade and become like run by the Cle- like the Cleveland Indians kind of are mm-hmm. uh, financially but um like, it, it's possible but it, it doesn't seem like something that's imminent I think though the worry for fans not just White Sox fans but for you know I think for a lot of different fans is that um, or at least it should be the worry is if they expand the playoffs then all of a sudden you know the market comes to Cleveland in a way in which like you suddenly get incentivized to behave in that sort of constant roster turnover manner rather than just like paying your players when they get to ARB because it if a if being the number seven seed is the same as being the number three seed in the postseason like you know what's the what's the real incentive to you know to spend I guess and that's something that I think for a team like the White Sox could have like a real sort of chilling effect on their spending if you know if, if that gets implemented in the next couple of years. I mean, not to mention that everybody's like laying off employees. And yeah, probably not going to spend anything in free agency this year, and maybe probably never really reverses any of the cutbacks they do to baseball resources after the season at any point down the future either. So that that's probably at the forefront of my mind. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, how about those White Sox? Exciting stuff. <laughs> they are exciting. Greg like, loves them. It bums me out that the fans, you know, would have that mentality of, "Oh, they're not this grinding bunch from 05. Like, dude. I, like, I mean, well, I that's, be that's also that. a self-selecting group of people who are choosing to yell on the internet. I mean, like, you know, like, <laughs> that happens on the internet. Well, it's like, when was the last time you know you got a message from someone saying, like, "Hey, I just, you know, I just wanted to say that, like, I really like the Yankees, and I think Hal Steinbrenner's a good owner." <laughs> you know like it's, it's been just, a while that's just not a thing maybe never you're gonna get so like but Hal Steinbrenner probably is a good you know good owner in terms of you know putting out a quality product first you know you just don't like it, it's understandable as we've talked about on almost every episode of this pod so far you know in the past like five months like fans and people in this country are incredibly demoralized and beaten down and so sports are an outlet for some of that frustration and you know sometimes we just kind of have to be the receptacle for it because you know it sucks right now to be to be here i, to, yeah, I, I should pissed. be fair and say like there's a considerable like 
culture of fanhood around Tim Anderson, who like lives in Chicago now, uh, you know, for reasons uh, I don't understand from a weather standpoint, but like is very ch- charitably involved and whatnot, and um, you know, people kind of embrace him a, a great deal and, and see him as kind of the face of the team, and everyone thinks Louise Roberts really exciting, and it's a oh, it's a it's a liberal leaning town, so like Lucas Giolito being kind of outspoken politically, that plays very well. Um, you know, even if it's like you know Hollywood liberalism, it, it's probably a lot more sincere than you ever see in baseball. So that that has a connection, and everyone really, the, to some degree, the whole Cuban connection thing and having the idea of you know, Jose Breu continuing tradition is also something that people uh, embrace and, and and talk about and. You know, the fact that they actually had a major free agent signing that seems to be working out in Dallas Keuchel, uh, you know, everyone has a, has a, getting a kick out of that. And to the, for the old school people like Keuchel calling out the team in Detroit uh, on, on record uh, played really well. And now everyone thinks that they have this, uh, this, this, you know, hard ass leadership that they've been craving for the longest time. Oh, I love uh, team fact- meetings. I love team meetings to turn it all around. Yeah, <laughs> I love. Yeah, those are great. I miss those. That's one thing I really miss about being on the beat is like the team meeting story Ooh, that comes out like day. two weeks after you know the team wins like six in a row, and it's like, oh, actually, what happened was is Raul Abanez stood up and told these guys to be proud and how good they are, and then they started winning. It's like, yes, that is what happened, man. Hell yeah. Well, the the amusing thing is the Keiko story is that he came on Zoom and he basically said like all these guys took like horse shit at bats tonight and they need to clean it up, <laughs> and so it happened in reverse. Yeah. Where the next day they're like Keiko spoke to the team before he aired us out to media. Uh, you know, it's a it's a well, it was a good meeting. We appreciate what he had to say. We respect him as a veteran. It wasn't just like he hopped on the laptop <laughs> said everybody sucked and now we hate them it was, yeah it, it was good like it, it was kind of done in the opposite order to, to, to your point <laughs> which, which i enjoy yeah well james thanks a ton for coming on this was a this was a really good time we appreciated your uh you know young man's jadedness it's nice you know to, to <laughs> see someone as uh, cynical as i am on this uh, wednesday afternoon so appreciate you coming on uh you can read all of james's work at theathletic.com it's a good website uh, you'll probably like it if you subscribe and uh, thank you for listening we'll be back next week